0: listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about
1: all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee and with me for part of the podcast this week, my co hostess with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko.
2: I'm glad to be here for part of the podcast.
1: Yeah, I'm kicking you out for the full thing because I'm just tired of you. Well, that's fine. <laughs> um, but I won't make you leave before we get to your favorite segment, don't worry. Good. Good. Um, so lots to talk about this week, but I thought I'd take a different turn than we normally take and have us talk about a Supreme Court of Canada decision that was released... Today being Thursday, the day that we're recording.
2: Yes, it was an uh, interesting decision. And again, another complete split decision Yeah. by the Supreme Court, where one judge in the end makes the difference. And I just find that this is uh, really calls, <laughs> creates cynicism among the public. If it doesn't, it probably should, if people were aware of this. Ultimately, in the end, all of these legal issues, nothing's clear cut. And it ends up coming down to one judge in the end.
1: Bent and Platnick is the name of the case. And when I sent it to you this morning and I said, read this before we record the podcast tonight, you, I guess, read it. And then you sent me a text message and said, what does this have to do with driving law?
2: Well, when I looked at the paragraphs that you were talking about, yes, but the, um, you know, it was a defamation case or it's an application to strike pleadings in a defamation case.
1: Ontario's anti-slap lawsuit mm -hmm. specifically. Uh, legislation was being relied on um, in that case to huge
2: amount of money. This doctor's looking for like $16, $16 million. million dollars How it... a defamation case?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess there was a, a news story published about this doctor that contained information that was leaked from an email that a lawyer sent to a lawyer's listserv.
2: So there's a lot of people on that listserv, like 800 mm-hmm. people on the listserv, and then somebody from the listserv leaked it. So yeah. I'll tell you, whoever leaked it. That's my feelings about
1: it. Beep boop boop boop. Beep boop boop boop. I'm not happy. You are beep boop 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 not very trustworthy. Exactly. You when you sign up for these lawyer listservs, you actually promise not to disseminate anything from the listserv to anybody not on the listserv.
2: You're not allowed to share it. You're not allowed to tell people about it. People post things on there about their cases seeking assistance from other counsel.
1: First rule of the listserv is you don't talk about the Listserv. Exactly. <laughs> it's just like Fight Club, but for lawyers and, talking and, about lawyer and stuff.
2: you have a legal obligation.
1: So why does this relate to driving law? The Listserv itself was specifically for lawyers dealing with personal injury claims in motor vehicle accidents. And this doctor is a doctor who testifies frequently for the insurance company and the insurance defense in motor vehicle accident cases, which is timely because our guest later on on this podcast is an insurance defense lawyer on the ICBC side. We haven't had a perspective from the defense side of the ICBC bar. That's great
2: that we're getting that.
1: Of course. I'm I'm an equal opportunity podcast host. Well, you had lots of
2: great guests uh, early in the podcast, and then you sort of went through a lot of the people who were Key connected to driving. All the good
1: people. <laughs> yeah. And then you're stuck with me. I'm stuck with, the, with you, yeah, and the insurance defense lawyers. Just kidding. My, no, no, my they, guest is awesome. No,
2: you're lucky to have a, you know, another good guest. It's been a while.
1: Anyway, so the email gets leaked. It ends up being leaked to a newspaper the newspaper publishes a story talking about how this doctor allegedly alters his reports and fabricates medical evidence and changes medical conclusions to support his version of events, damning to his career, if true. If true. If true.
2: Not damning, if not true.
1: Well, I mean, he's hired by the insurance companies, so presumably they would be like, okay. But I guess the problem is that he can be cross-examined on it.
2: Well, I think it would it's damning if not true was the point um and the assertion is that it's not true because if it's true it's not defamation
1: well that's true but (laughs) i but from like a practical perspective if it's not true and it's published and like what's the worst that could happen you go to trial you're asked about it in trial you say that's not true that's just some lawyer with an agenda and then the judge makes a decision if the judge doesn't find you lacking credibility then who the fuck cares? Well,
2: my point here is that, and I, maybe what you're getting to is that the defamation doesn't seem to be significant defamation.
1: I don't um, see it being worth sixteen million dollars. No,
2: I mean, in in British Columbia, it seems there's no such thing as defamation. Sometimes I think, but in Ontario, maybe they do. We're not allow, picking
1: that scab. We know
2: in, in Ontario, maybe they do uh, award large sums. I don't know.
1: Well, in any event, um, Ontario has this legislation that says that you can basically have a defamation or any other type of lawsuit just thrown out of court if it appears to be like a strategic lawsuit um or anti-strategic lawsuit well an anti-anti-freedom, entirely... anti-freedom
2: of expression is yeah. what it was the idea is to to when people are making legitimate uh criticisms that you shouldn't be able to just sue them into uh, yeah. into submission Str-
1: strategic litigation against public protest
2: Exactly. And it's,
1: it's to prevent that. Yes. So she said, oh, this is just a slap lawsuit because what I'm doing is effectively public interest information. I'm telling about a bad doctor who does bad things and misleads the court. And I'm a lawyer and it's my obligation. And so I've got to re- publish this information.
2: But I, what I get from it is that she didn't publish it.
1: Well, she did publish it in the listserv.
2: She published it in the listserv, which is a private discussion. Right. In a private group of people who agree to the terms of it and who can come draw their own conclusions. And I, to me, it was a private discussion.
1: Right. But the court, the Supreme Court of Canada, at least the majority, seemed to suggest that even though it's a private discussion between individuals that's supposed to stay within the confines of that in part because one of the things that you agree to when you sign up for the listserv is that you don't post something that might be defamatory. And based on the fact that she could have expressed her concerns in another way, but chose to do it that way, and could have advanced her complaint and caution without defaming, that it did rise to the level of defamation and publication.
2: Well, the Supreme Court of Canada has a... um... As a
1: but there's a split,
2: right? Fairly low standard. But again, it's a split. It's so. a full-on split. Four judges didn't agree with that.
1: So I thought, you know, that was interesting from a a driving law perspective just for the listserv angle because, of course, there are numerous listservs. It's not just Ontario that has these. I'm sure they're in every province.
2: I belong to listservs for I these
1: things. belong to many listservs for all sorts of stuff. Yep. Yeah can't say much more than that because the first rule of fight club is you don't talk about fight club but
2: well and I will tell you if I saw something on there that was uh like this I wouldn't it would not have a whole great effect on me making decisions I wouldn't look at it and say oh no I will never trust that doctor again yeah <laughs> like I the, might the be actual like... effect I mean when you're talking yeah. to 16.3 million dollars this doctor is looking for um you know I, I, I could see $100,000 or something, but like.
1: <laughs> but this case, Paul, I found also interesting for another reason. Mm-hmm. And I directed you to that as well when you said, what does this have to do with driving law? Uh, a defamation know, that case. Does,
2: that does make sense. you know.
1: Um, one of the things. But it's a
2: very strict context just for us, really.
1: Yes, but it's important to driving law in British Columbia because let me go back in time. To my long and arduous journey through the B.C. Supreme Court all the way to the Court of Appeal. And in fact, a judge that was appointed, I hit the table there, I was so excited about this, a judge that was appointed to the B.C. Court of Appeal from the B.C. Supreme Court just yesterday is the judge that started this long and arduous journey with me.
2: Did we have another judge appointed to the... Court yes. of Appeal.
1: Yes, Justice Voice Voith was elevated from the BC Supreme Court. So
2: another Court. another male male white. Well, Voith is probably
1: like Eastern European or I something. I don't think so. I, think I don't know. Fuck if I know. Probably Dutch. Okay. Well, anyway, yes, <clears throat> more white men on the BC Supreme Court or in the BC Court of Appeal. Um, but we did have a woman of color appointed to the BC Supreme Court. One out of a
2: hundred.
1: Yes. Um, The point being, Justice Voith wrote the very first case in this series of cases that I did, trying to argue that the superintendent of motor vehicles should reopen IRP hearings if somebody gets fresh evidence that they couldn't have adduced at the time of the hearing.
2: In that strict timeline.
1: And in the first case, Justice Voith said, yeah, this is stupid that you can't, but, and I think the superintendent... Should be able to do it, but why are you running to court, Miss Lee? You should ask the superintendent to do it. And so I did. And then the superintendent said, what? We don't have jurisdiction to do this. So then I went back to court.
2: Are you talking before the decision's been rendered?
1: After the decision's been rendered. So you get your decision, and then you find out through an FOI two months after your IRP, that the ASD that was used on you the very next day was pulled up from service because an Abbotsford police officer blew into it and blew a fail. A true story. Yes. And, I mean, probably that Abbotsford police officer was drunk. I
2: (laughs) I doubt Um, it. I don't think so. That's defamation. We uh, don't know who
1: it was. I do. Do you? Yeah,
2: and he wasn't drunk.
1: Okay. Anyway. I didn't know who it was. Um, anyway, the point being that uh, the the you should have the opportunity to do that because you can't get the evidence in time for your hearing. Of course. And Justice Voight said, yeah, this makes perfect sense, but go ask the superintendent first before you ask me. And then the superintendent said, what? We don't have any authority to do this. at the legislation. So off I went to court again and said, but Justice Voight said they could. And then a different... Supreme Court judge, a woman of color, um, said, no, they're right. They don't have the authority and they can't do anything that they don't have the power to do in the legislation. So then um, she said, your appropriate remedy is, in fact, to bring a judicial review and seek to reduce the fresh evidence on judicial review, which was what I tried to do in the first place, but whatever. We'll go full circle and try it again. So I tried a third time, this time in front of a female justice who's not a person of color, and got a decision successfully reopening the hearing and allowing fresh evidence. And then sending the... um,
2: Decision back for a rehearing with the fresh evidence. Sending
1: the decision back for a rehearing with the fresh evidence. And then they appealed. And I wrote the best factum I've ever written in my life, I promise you it was amazing. It was like my best work. I was so proud of it. I was so excited the day leading up to the hearing because I was like, there's no way I can lose this. I've written the tightest factum, the law is on my side, I've laid all of the groundwork through now, like 18 months of litigation, and two days before the hearing we get a memo to counsel from the Chief Justice of the BC Court of Appeal who says, don't you think what the judge actually ordered in this case was an order in the nature of mandamus requiring the superintendent to consider the fresh evidence? And you can't make an order compelling them to exercise discretion that they don't have. And so how is it that you're able to get the remedy that she ordered, Miss Lee? And this was not what the superintendent had argued at the hearing. Not what the superintendent had argued in their factum. Everything was on my side except the language used to craft the order made it an order in the nature of Vandamus as opposed to an order of certiorari, um, remitting it back for a rehearing. And so I went to the Court of Appeal and the superintendent was like, yeah, what you said basically was their argument. I
2: remember this now. What you said. And I just like...
1: I cried, I actually cried that day after court, because everything I had invested so much time and effort all pro bono well
2: you're three you're you're three times at bat, basically,
1: yeah, at this point. three times at bat, finally hitting it out of the park, and rather than allow fairness to proceed and to prevail,
2: they say it's football,
1: they say, yeah, exactly, and they hey, pull a Lucy a, I think this is a football stadium
2: and i'm I'm Lucy
1: they, they, they pulled a Lucy on me, so. I kind of like put it to the side at that point because uh, I just like emotionally was crippled at the idea of like having to go back. I
2: recall that you were upset. Yeah. Um I cried. No, but you I held you cry. held it together.
1: I held it together in court. I cried after court. No,
2: but you held it in together the hallway. in the office afterward. I mean you were you were a little bit down about it, but
1: I cried in the hallway. Right, all bad. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, if you if you go on an 18-month pro bono on a journey that costs you tens of thousands of dollars out of your own pocket yes, in I time know. and I effort. Know. And... I
2: know you financed most of these
1: yeah.
2: serious ones yourself. But, and, and it cost money, and we paid costs on a lot of those things, too. And oh my goodness. The, uh, but, Paul. And the, the upsetting thing for me is just like, throw a gallop bone. Right? Mean, like, I'm just
1: trying to make it more fair. Like, uh, I'm not trying to pull the wool over anybody's like the, eyes. I'm the, the trying Heisiger, to make it more
2: fair. The one. Still just makes me sick.
1: <laughs> but Paul, today I am vindicated. I know. Because the Supreme Court of Canada, at least the majority of five, in their judgment, that's the law. Said they relied on this Palmer test that was written like back in the eighties um, by the Supreme Court of Canada for adducing fresh evidence. But specifically, they relaxed just a little bit, but just enough in my opinion the rules of the fresh evidence test in circumstances where you have tight timelines because there was tw- there were 25 days
2: we have from the tightest when, timelines yeah. we've got 2 weeks yeah. from the date that the irp is issued
1: this person this doctor had 25 days from when he was served with the motion to file his evidentiary record we get the irp gets filed in review we get the disclosure up to 48 hours before the hearing that's their policy so up a a, a minimum of forty eight hours is what we get to respond, and a maximum of fourteen days.
2: Yeah, and it's never fourteen days. It's I mean, ne- it's twelve days with weekends and stuff. That's yeah, with weekends best. and, and the, that's we're talking like
1: the lag time on and, them actually and, providing disclosure. Yeah.
2: And we're talking that includes weekends, which means we're working weekends to make sure that we get it done.
1: Yeah.
2: Um. But they've uh, they've relaxed it a little bit here, where there's the tight timeline. They've said after the fact, but. Mm-hmm. We're talking after a hearing here. That's the difference. And when I read that, um, you know, after, Obviously it's an appeal after a hearing, a but before, a, yes, but hang on, are are they not saying here that um, before the decision is rendered? In other words, if the decision is not rendered for for a month and you get that disclosure, then you should be able to submit it. If the hearing's not decision is yeah. not rendered in three weeks, then you should be able to submit it. But what if the decision's rendered? that seems to be different.
1: Well, but the decision had been rendered in his case when he got some of the new evidence that they allowed him to admit. Uh-huh. And you do it on appeal, uh-huh. which is what I tried to do the first time around.
2: Yes, and then you were sent back. And, that and didn't
1: now work. I won't be and sent now you back won't be anymore. Sent back?
2: You think? They'll well, do I'll some write dance. the superintendent.
1: I'll give them 2 weeks and then I'll file my judicial review and I'll rely on this judgment and I will Feel empowered again.
2: Until you Briefly. get to the Court of Appeal. And then they yeah. will... <laughs> and then they'll lucy me. <laughs> it's hockey.
1: <laughs> it's hockey.
2: And there's a sheet of plywood in front of the net.
1: You're behind the blue Missly. line. Or something. I don't know. Sheet of plywood that. in front of the net. Yeah, yeah.
2: One little tiny hole carved out of the sheet of, drilled you know out of the sheet of plywood that's if, slightly smaller than the puck.
1: If I get the puck in the hole, I get a million dollars. wish. <laughs> nope. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the story. That's what happened. Well, it's, it's an pain. interesting
2: one in the end. Um, it required all of that backstory for me to understand why you viewed it that way why it's so important i read it and i thought well you know this gives us till the time that at least they've rendered the decision if we get some other information the problem is that we don't get the information until months later and so we only get it out of fishing expeditions usually for uh in freedom of information requests where we find it and it's not a systematic thing because we can't afford to do a systematic thing like that i mean i used to spend how many hours did i used to spend doing those
1: 10,000 hours i
2: spent 10,000 hours doing all of those requests and i know that there's lots of stuff out there but i just don't have the time
1: anymore well it's, yeah and it's like it, it to we have to go through a thousand pages to find one page that tells us where to look next
2: i know and you and used to stay to up till
1: 3 in the morning yes, going I through did. page I can't after page do it anymore. Um, but speaking of shifting the goalposts changing the game and time
2: pulling the ball out from you just before you kick it <laughs>
1: poor l drivers in this province oh my
2: goodness i mean so come on that's when just you... like smacks of cruelty in a pandemic
1: when you get your l <laughs> you have two years it's a two-year license it's not a, cla- a five-year class license. seven
2: restricted license for two years
1: and if you do not get your get rid of your l By taking your road test and graduating to your N.
2: Getting rid of the restriction that you have to display an L and have a supervisor, Supervisor, etc.
1: If you don't do that within two years of when you get that license, the license becomes null and void, and you have to go back. You have to take a knowledge test, and you have to start the two years again. Which, ordinarily, in the normal times, two years is enough time to do it.
2: You could contact them, and you can go in and do the test. Yeah. It only takes, uh, you can get in to do that test relatively quickly.
1: Ordinarily, ordinarily in the normal times. get rid of your
2: N. Or but get rid of your L, rather.
1: All these people are now in the position where they couldn't take the test during COVID. They were able to some extent to get some restrictions when road tests weren't happening, or some extensions when road tests weren't happening, so their licenses didn't expire. But now that they've reinstated the road tests, they've said, no more extensions, get your road test on. The problem is y'all can't get a road test till January.
2: Yeah. And probably February now, because yeah. that was January when they first started like doing them. So now they're bumped into probably February and they were talking about hiring a bunch of people, but they've got to train them and everything. And it's well, not. Well, I they're heard not David
1: Evie yesterday on the Linda Steele show talking about this. He's saying, oh, you know, we're adding 6,000 more road test slots before the end of the year. Well, that's great. But- Like, his advice to people is just go on the website and keep refreshing until you see a test time. People got to go to school. People got to work. it's not
2: just that. Like, that doesn't deal with the, that just deals with maybe one person who's having a, who's lucky enough to get a spot. Yeah, because uh, those road tests are also being used. All the other people who are trying to get on there, Mm -hmm. there's a fixed number of seats for uh, for the concert, and they're all held by Ticketmaster, and you've just got to keep going on there, and Ticketmaster's never going to release them.
1: Yep. It's ridiculous. It's it's so horrible. I feel so terrible for those people, and I don't understand why ICBC can't just give an extension, but one of the callers on the Linda Steel show made a good point. What? Dumpster fire. How much money do they get if you have to go back, pay for your knowledge test, pay your fees to have another two-year license, pay for another road test? They make more money this way.
2: Yeah, I always like to think that those services are services that that don't pay for themselves, that they paying for the staff and paying for the building and everything doesn't help, but it's true. You know, they, they generate revenue from it. It's a service they provide by bumping people down the road. You're making people pay twice. Mm -hmm. Um, So you are, uh, you're basically turning them into another source of revenue. Yep. Fair enough. Yep. It's horrible. ICBC dumpster fire, people getting the raw deal
1: yep so that's got me down um and i just wanted to like spend a minute on that
2: no Um, it's i mean it's completely unfair and uh, i will tell you lots of police officers are um are very sympathetic to people who have l's and n's and don't like to give them tickets and when they do they often encourage them to go get rid of their l and n and dispute mm -hmm. their ticket in the meantime um the um if you do have an LRN and you get a ticket and you're worried about that, give us a call. We're happy to help you with it. But uh, I don't I'm think we can help right people now. with this Stick part.
1: Dick handling a February road test date. Are you for a client? And mm. it's yeah, it's a pain. It's horrible. It sucks. But that's what. And you know, the other thing is, it actually really pushes... sad
2: thing is, you get people who have had an L and they're getting close to their two years and they haven't been under that much pressure to get their license anymore because they need to drive. Well, now they don't need to drive because that, but they're, you know, they're looking at needing to drive to have a license to be able to work in the future. (laughs) Um, And then you get the people who have their N and they've had their N for a long time and they've never really thought that it mattered. You know, like they drive, they can drive. They only ever drive by themselves. They drive for work, but they display their N and then they get a ticket. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And then they have a big problem because they're going to get a driving prohibition as a result of the ticket and they've got to start their two years again. Yep. Ugh.
1: So, before I leave you to talk to my guest, I thought I'd spend just a moment talking about our ridiculous driver of the week. The ridiculous driver of the week. And it actually goes to not just one driver. Not many drivers.
2: but And it's a British Columbia Ridiculous Driver of the Week.
1: It is. Um, I think you're thinking of someone different than me, although similar circumstances. I'm thinking of the entire rally with supercars that was held up in Pemberton over the Labor Day weekend, which, great. Don't pick one of the highest crash weekends to do your big road rally drive from the Lower Mainland up to Pemberton.
2: I was on with Mike Smith on uh Tuesday morning about this um and somebody phoned in to say, You guys are just jealous of those people with their supercars and you're just jealous you know what? I, I, I admire the I admire the engineering in these vehicles. You can you can buy them, you're allowed to buy them. You're allowed to own them. Um I don't it makes no sense to me to have cars that go that fast, but you can't use the highways as a racetrack.
1: Yeah, and also I'm not jealous because a I love my car, b those cars are so low to the ground I wouldn't be able to get in them with my back.
2: No, I couldn't get in them either. I mean, it's not <laughs> an issue of like I,
1: I am should... too old to I, drive I, that. I,
2: I have trouble getting out of my sedan. Uh, yeah, it's one of the reasons I drive the truck.
1: Yeah, I have trouble getting in and out of my car, my chair, I my, ride my bed, my shower, everything. I... Well,
2: you had your you had your car accident. Yeah.
1: So, you know, there's no jealousy here. I just, you know, we know that the Labor Day weekend is one of the highest crash weekends. We know that the Sea to Sky Highway is one of the highest crash highways. Um, We know that it's a place that people are tempted to drive really badly. It's already distracting because it's gorgeous to drive it and you're like oh beautiful view mist and islands and water and mountains and oh my goodness the natural wonder of beautiful british columbia I, smash
2: i always think how much taxpayers uh taxpayers in fort st john paid to build yeah. that highway for people from the west for side the of vancouver to drive to whistler so they could go skiing
1: yeah <laughs> well you know
2: screw you interior we, of british columbia
1: we all got to do our part to support those west vancouverites
2: oh my collecting
1: gosh. welfare in their multi-million dollar mansions. Yep. Um, but the, the you know, and then you add into all of that a supercar, which when you get a bunch, when you have one of them, it's distracting because they're loud, because they're nice to look at, because people don't see them that often, and then throw into the fact that there's multiple of them. You have distracted drivers, literal definition of distracted driving, and there was an accident, massive accident.
2: Yeah, it, I don't know what happened in the accident, but the Lamborghini that was smashed up had a decal on the door for this rally. Um, the uh, There was a Range Rover involved and a, like a Toyota, a small Toyota crossover going the other direction. There was two children injured who were apparently going to recover, but one was uh, taken away in the uh, Medivac helicopter. Um, and remember, this is taxpayers. We're paying for this.
1: Ching, 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 for We're paying for
2: the helicopter ride. And ICBC's.
1: Uh, and insuring ICBC the is
2: insuring the cars. All of those cars are insured through ICBC. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we're, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars for taxpayers to pay out here. And uh, some children who were injured. And I assume the children were in the Toyota, not the Range Rover. Certainly they weren't in the Lamborghini. <laughs> um, no,
1: Maybe they were no driving the Lamborghini seat. and that's how the accident happened.
2: Well, that, then it would be a much more interesting story. Um, and I'm sure we would have heard that angle. But mm-hmm. the point is, like... Add it up. It's probably a half million bucks. Yep. With the with easily. the helicopter trip. dollars the the for the car. Yeah, they start at 150, but yeah. Say say three hundred easily a half million. Easily. So you know, six thousand dollars an hour probably for that helicopter. Yep. So and then the injury claims and the Toyota was a write-off. Um, yeah, and it looked new.
1: It's forty thousand.
2: Whatever it is, yeah, probably about that. So, uh, and then whatever the injury claims are going to be. And of course, all of those people who were stuck for three hours yeah. as the road highway was closed.
1: And as we talked about with Chris Carter on an earlier episode of the podcast, you could technically sue for being stuck for three hours.
2: Yeah, somebody could do, start doing class actions for cases like that.
1: You could do it.
2: You should talk to Eric McGrack and he should be looking into that <laughs> because... Uh,
1: My next guest is going to be like pissed to hear yeah. this.
2: <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess you're suing ICBC yeah. uh, because they would be the ones stepping in. But, it's a uh,
1: foreseeable consequence of the collision.
2: Now you're talking about whether or not what what is the insurance that you have on your Lamborghini? You sure hope that you paid for the extra, so you got five million dollars worth of insurance instead of instead of two. Because uh, I just renewed the insurance on my car the other day, and I I you know I left it where it was.
1: I left mine where it was too.
2: I'm taking the risk. Yeah. I am also, I don't drive like an asshole. Yeah, that's so. the thing.
1: I'm not going to be the, the...
2: It's possible that I'll be the cause of an accident, but it's not like It's likely. no
1: fault in a year. Less than a year. Eight months. Eight months to no fault. Yeah. Speaking of eight months to no fault, my next guest is an ICBC defense lawyer. I know him through Twitter, uh, Rabjeet Walia. He is an excellent, hilarious person with a dark sense of humor, and he and I recently... Um, Well, he organized and put together a panel on uh, law and mental health and trial stress, um, which was all inspired by a tweet that he wrote. Um, Great guy. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about the ICBC situation right now from the perspective of an ICBC defense lawyer also facing the prospect of looming unemployment. Hello, RJ, and uh, I introduced you when I recorded the introduction as Ravjeet, but you go by RJ, and you were just telling me the story, but I don't know how to operate a soundboard, so it uh, didn't get recorded.
0: (laughs) That's perfectly fine. RJ is definitely what I go by. Ravjeet is reserved for when my parents are mad at me, or for official purposes. But I prefer RJ, and I think that it's easier for everyone involved, so please feel free to call me RJ.
1: It also makes you sound more like a comic book superhero.
0: It really does provide a level of casual gravitas that I never convey. Yeah. So I'm glad (laughs) to have it.
1: (laughs) It's, I don't know, like, if I had, like, a a way to, like, have a nickname that would, you know, and then you transform into Rabjeet in court and you're, you know, Mr. Walia, distinguished counsel who can defeat plaintiffs with a single argument or something like that.
0: You know, it'd be interesting if I was able to do that. It (laughs) would make my life a lot easier. But I think you've got the better catch your name because you can walk in and it's like I'm Kyla Lee and it's just got that level of oh I've got to pay attention now (laughs) or oh I really should have brought my notes today
1: (laughs) yeah I doubt that (laughs) I think most people are like uh, you know I say I'm Kyla Lee and then there's a collective eye roll from everybody in the courtroom because they know it's going to be long and painful
0: (laughs) you know what to be honest though I think that you know, reputations always speak for themselves and they always come I've always been taught that they enter a room before you walk in, but to be honest, I've never heard anything but like good things when I hear people talk about you, so
1: Oh, well thank you. I've never yeah. heard anything but good things about you. Um I can't say that about, you know, your client <laughs> There's well, people I mean, on the radio all the time, but I know you uh enjoy working in I C D C defense.
0: I do. I actually am. They're a great client as far as I'm concerned. I think that, you know, they are, you know, they're an individual, they're a corporation which is just trying to do, you know, what they're supposed to do and also what they can do. I think that uh, from a client's perspective, they're attentive, they listen, and I think that at the end of the day I'll leave them to be able to talk about themselves but from my personal experience in this profession I've been happy with them so um, you know things are in the change as we know with Mm -hmm. uh, the government's uh, legislation which was recently passed which will change the landscape of litigation um, for insurance defense as well as personal injury but for me honestly I'm I was originally called in Ontario in 2013 so I'm in year 7 now and I'm really excited about what the future holds.
1: Really? What what excites you? Because I th- I was under the impression that like you guys were facing the same sort of unemployment prospects that the plaintiffs bar are are worried about.
0: We are. I think that the landscape is changing. I think that you know, a fundamental shift is happening. I can only speak from my professional perspective, which is so before I went to law school, I had I got an undergraduate degree in business from mm-hmm. Kaplan University. And so my mindset has always been that there are two sides to the practice of law. There's the legal aspect and there's the business aspect. Mm-hmm. For me personally, what is being provided is an opportunity uh, to differentiate myself, differentiate my practice, and move into other areas of law in addition to insurance defense out there, because there is more than one insurance company. You know, there are other aspects of personal injury which come into play. So insurance defense will change as will the plaintiff side personal injury aspect will change. There's nothing around that. And I will leave other people to argue the pros and cons about that. For me personally, I look at this and say, okay, who am I as a lawyer and what do I want to do with my practice? And, how am I going to shift myself, differentiate myself, market myself, and teach myself to be a better use to whoever client wants to hire me?
1: Well, now they ta- they say there's all these rumors, and I don't do the, the plaintiff work, so I don't know that they're true, but there's all these rumors that uh, you guys never like to go to trial. Is that true?
0: I can't speak to anybody else. I love trial. Um, <laughs> You know, I love going to trial from my professional perspective about it. I think that, you know, for me, it's, I'm a litigator. You know, mm-hmm. for me, trial is just another aspect of the job. I personally enjoy it because I've always been a fan of not just the seriousness of it. I know it's a serious matter. And, you know, it is the last place you want to end up when it comes to litigating because ultimately you want to come to a resolution if you can. But if we are in trial, I enjoy the pageantry and the theater of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is serious. You know, you can't take away the fact that we deal with serious issues when we go to court. So there is that level of decorum and respect and, you know, the solemnity of it. Mm -hmm. Um, But that being said, as a litigator, I enjoy going to trial.
1: So if you are contemplating opportunities to expand your practice and expand your business. Is it going to be something that's more litigation focused then? Is that where you're looking? Cause that's where your passion is and your skills. So I am looking at keeping litigation as
0: the primary focus of my practice, but litigation, I think has to change with the way, you know, there's people out there who just want to be trial lawyers and always want to be trial lawyers and just, get in there and I see the merit in that and I think that's something that will be a facet of my work but uh, fundamentally anyone who's looking at what is happening and saying okay what's the next step um, I don't know how many people are fans of hockey in Vancouver I'm kidding we, I know exactly <laughs> how many people are fans of hockey a
1: lot <laughs> Gretzky,
0: yeah exactly Gretzky always talked about not going where the puck is but going where the going be where the puck is going And I had an instructor, Cap, named um, Ivan Suryanovich, who has a marketing website about that as well. Talk about, you know, you want to be where the puck is going. And I think that lawyers of my quote-unquote vintage, to use that term, have to shape the way they think about being more of a jack-of-all-trades. What is it that the client is going to be looking for? So if we take a look at what people various different seminars and webinars talk about it's the access to justice Mm -hmm. unbundling services you know being more flexible and I think that's what we have to do as well which is as an advocate for your client what is the service that they're looking for they're not just looking for you to fight the fight and go to trial and be the knight in shining armor they're also looking for your advice and your counsel so what does that mean for us we all assess risk. We're all able to take a fact pattern, apply the law to it, and say, this is what I think the likely outcome is. How do we avoid what the likely outcome is? Or how can we uh, change, you know, come up with an alternative that meets your needs and also avoids a costly trial? Because the reality is these trials are incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't charge as much as others out there just because of my year of call, but it is an expensive prospect. You know, people can email me and say, look, what do you charge? You know, can you help me out? It's like, I'd love to help you out. This is what I charge. And they're like, I can't afford that. And so what are we going to do or how do I differentiate myself is the question I ask to be helpful to people, to maintain my practice and also maintain longevity in this career. So this is an exciting opportunity in that respect. There are, you know, people who are facing challenges and I'm not taking away from that. But all I can say is, personally, for me, I always look at, okay, what are the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats of what I'm doing? And this is a unique opportunity for my personal growth as a lawyer. So in that way, I'm very excited.
1: I'm, like, so refreshed to hear that. You know, with impaired driving lawyers, we went through sort of a similar crisis when they brought in the IRP legislation in BC. And we all thought, you know, this is the end of our existence, and, you know, my firm's pivoted and turned it into an opportunity to try and service more clients in areas that, you know, previously didn't exist and and don't have very many lawyers servicing them and I I really like to hear that there are other lawyers out there, you know, approaching this sort of ICBC eliminating trials situation with the same type of, you know, optimism and and go-getter spirit that just makes me happy. <laughs>
0: I think clients will always choose what they think is best. And they always. And I think it comes down to looking at what the facts show and making your play from there and making your decision from there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for us as lawyers, what we have to do is, you know, look at what our professional skill set is. Um, for some, it's about being able to advocate the facts in a court of law in a persuasive manner. For others, it's going to be, am I a skilled negotiator? You know, can I resolve conflict? Can I resolve issues in a satisfactory way? Am I excellent at risk assessment? Am I you know, what do I bring to the table? What can I build to bring to the table? And is there a way for me to continue in my career path while still doing that? I mean you talk to you talk to any senior lawyers, and I'm not necessarily talking about maybe five, ten years, but even more senior. People have been doing this for thirty thirty five years, forty years uh the landscape has shifted, and I think they've seen the peaks and valleys of various areas of law um you know I remember when, as you know impaired driving lawyers um started to lose business. There were firms that shut up shop when the changes came through in the in the province, and yep. you know it's about pivoting right some people can some people can't, and it's not to disparage anybody. Everyone comes with their own unique skill set. But, you know, Kyla, you, for example, have done a significant effort of marketing yourself and putting yourself forward as someone who can help in various different ways. Um, So that's a pivot. You know, my firm I know is looking to diversify and differentiate. I personally am doing that. I'm putting myself out there saying, look, I just want to help people, uh, whoever that people may be. You know, it could be individuals, could be corporations, could be businesses, could be, you know, employers, employees, whoever it may be. I think what we need to do to navigate these uncertain times, because I think COVID as well, is a huge curveball that no one was anticipating, Mm -hmm. which, you know, what have we realized from COVID? We've realized that we need to have continuity of business in a remote and digital setting. We need to, and the courts are actually doing, you know, they're doing what they can and they're getting up to speed to their credit of digitizing and creating a process in which we can do things by Zoom or Microsoft Teams or whatever program is available. And, you know, just trying to facilitate a way to keep the wheels of justice turning and not having everything grind to a halt if we can do it from home.
1: How, how has it been for you as somebody who likes going to trial, who has the type of a practice that, you know, if you're going to go to trial, it's by and large going to be a jury trial when there haven't been, and as I understand, still aren't maybe jury trials happening on civil files. How are you, like, how are you managing that? How has that been mentally and, and how are you coping with it?
0: So for me, I found, so courts were shut down as uh, in the middle of March. They just said, look, we're shutting everything down. Everything is presumptively adjourned. And they were going through a growing pains process of that. And we all had to pivot and adjust. And one of the things that I liked was that um, my relationships with my colleagues on the other side, my brethren, as I call them, uh, was actually quite good. It's We're all wearing this together. We're all trying to figure this out let's work together to see if we can keep the conversations going and keep the file moving forward. Mm -hmm. As of June, uh, the courts opened up with uh, courtrooms that were safe for physically distancing. Juries are not, in the civil context, have been uh, postponed. Juries will not be selected until January of 2021. Between (laughs) you, me, and everyone else who's listening, I could see that continuing on for much longer. I do not think that we will get a civil jury in uh, the next 12 months Uh, just because there's too many concerns about you know the curve blasting open again and just getting reinfected i think what's been good is in the civil context we have a trial management conference at least a month before trial and the judges have been incredibly good about telling us look this is what you can expect how many people do you have coming out from over from out of province who need to attend by video or who have health issues lawyers have to be proactive in making sure that their witnesses and whoever is coming to court is symptom-free and is not of a concern. And we also make sure that the documents that we use... So civil litigation, for those who may not know, is do- it can be document-intensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of joint books of documents, if we can. Document agreements, I think, are now almost a must you know, we're being a bit more forthcoming with what our case will be to begin with. I think we still maintain a level of, okay, well, this is what I'm going to be using for cross, but I'm going to keep that depending on what your client says. I don't know what I'm going to be using. But as more collegiality. I think, you know, it's really important to remember that this is a crisis which affects everybody. We all have stresses outside of work which will determine how we behave and you know kyle and I, you and i were on that panel about managing trial stress uh by the way thank you again for appreci- for appearing on that you were, oh,
1: thanks for
0: provide a lot me. of insight and a lot of guidance i think for people oh thanks um, <laughs> well i saw your tweet where you said you felt like you were the most junior one in the room and i was like that's not true because i was there
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're only a year behind me if you count your ontario time
0: I do. I always count my Ontario time because I never let people forget that I worked in Toronto. The good, but I think that, um, you know, we all bring a level of insight from different areas, and that was a good panel, I think, because we were all open to admitting that, you know, trials are tough. This job is tough. Life is tough. You know, Mm. I have family members to think about. You have family members to think about, and so being as collegial and as understanding as you can with each other is how we're going to get through this professionally. Uh, My firm, to go back to your question before I went off on tangents, (laughs) so Swadden and Company jumped in with the digital realm with both feet in about 10 years ago, nine or 10 years ago. So Rick Swadden made everything paperless and digital. Wow. So our office is fully remote. And so when you know, we have processes in place that if you, the only paper you're going to see is something you print out yourself. So if you wanted everything to be digital, it was. It was already assessed, it was already put in the proper filing system. We have digital signatures where necessary. And it's just, this was a seamless transition. So as long as you had the infrastructure at home, you could have full continuity. And I actually was busier during the pandemic shutdown than I was prior because. With, the, with trial not being a thing, because uh, the courts were shut down, all of a sudden a lot of people had more time to focus on their files.
1: Yep. <laughs> You're getting letter <laughs> after letter settlement proposal.
0: You're <laughs> getting letters. The client's like, hey, I'd like an update because I'm able to look at this. And it's like, okay, great. And when people weren't able to do things because they were just trying to take care of their loved ones, make sure they had, you know, groceries, masks, whatever, or just needed a break. It's like, look, we can make sure this works Mm. Um, but you need to be surrounded by people who assist in that you know and you have to be in a place where that can work and a lot of people don't have the tech a lot of lawyers didn't have the technological infrastructure to survive that um or to do it as successfully as others so i think it really i think the eye-opening lesson for everyone is you can't avoid technology anymore no no i don't think and i think the court looked at it and said Okay, if we're gonna keep this going and make sure people get their day in court, we're gonna to have to step up our game and that's gonna be a multi level, you know, process. It requires, you know, all levels of government. It requires the profession, the bar, the judiciary, you know, the provincial, local, federal government to step up and say, Okay, what are we gonna to do to facilitate this? Uh I don't know how the criminal aspect of law worked during COVID, so you'd probably be able to answer that better (laughs) than I could.
1: We had some tense uh, publications from the court um, noting that not a lot of things could happen, because even though some things were scheduled, some of the lawyers didn't have computers. So What? Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's like totally normal in criminal law, just you don't have a computer. Why would you have a computer? You don't need a computer. You don't need to bring cases, because it's just sort of generally principles and credibility and Everybody knows what the law is, and you know, if you do need a case, you can just pop down to the library and print it off. And you don't need a computer because you never do a written argument because you're cross-examining, and then you're just standing on your feet. And that's criminal law for a lot of lawyers. Not for me, but for a lot of them. And so the court was very surprised to learn that lawyers did not have access to a computer. It's, it
0: is it is quaint in one way yeah. and horrifying in another. <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, it's, but what does it speak to? It actually speaks to Ian Mulgrew's recent article in the Vancouver Sun, which is where he said the, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember it exactly, but it was, you know, the gov- we've had the benefit of the best legal, 19th century legal system that money can buy.
1: Mm-hmm. But we also had, you know, we were paying criminal lawyers working primarily on legal aid the highest rates you could get in the 19th century. And so, you know, if a computer's not necessary, you're not going to make that expenditure, because you don't have the funds.
0: I have friends in criminal law, um, and they talk, I've seen them struggle with legal aid, and this is across the country, I think legal aid is something that needs to be addressed and i think people don't realize the average person i think doesn't realize um what it takes to qualify to get a legal aid assistant and it's essentially you have to be below the poverty line yeah if not at it to be able to access it so you know if you're making forty thousand dollars a year you should be able to afford a lawyer How is that possible, especially (laughs) in this city?
1: I don't know, because you couldn't afford me at $40,000 a year, and I am cheap.
0: I couldn't afford me. You know, I know that it's, and I say that not just being like, oh, I can't afford me. But there's a reality to running a business. And, you know, let's talk about what lawyers of our vintage, and I'm using ours, because you probably went through the same tuition fees that I did. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, Where you know a lawyer fifteen twenty years out was able to fund their education on minimal loans or with a summer job uh I went to Osgood, my tuition was around eighteen nineteen grand a year.
1: no, oh, mine was less than that. you must have gone to what, u of t uh sorry, you went to u of t I went to Osgood Osgood. So oh yeah, yeah, so you went to York City just, school. just more north, yeah. <laughs> I went to UBC and mine was around twelve, twelve five a year. Okay, but let's put
0: that in perspective. So we're looking at around thirty six to forty thousand dollars in tuition and books. Mm-hmm. It doesn't include living in the city. It doesn't include having to eat. Mm-hmm. It doesn't include the fact that if you want to pursue, you know, a, let's talk about averages. A lot of people pursue big downtown jobs because they'll pay the most money and be able to pay off your tuition faster. What does that mean? Your clothing budget has to be higher. You've got to keep up with the Joneses. And in addition, you're dealing with increased levels of stress and people who don't have actual medication. So they self-medicate in a lot of ways.
1: Yep.
0: Now you're going to go and say, okay, I've bitten, I've bitten the bullet. I'm willing to recognize that the principles that I walked in with law, into law school with of helping people is how I'm going to approach my profession. And I'm going to do legal aid work because they need me the most. Oh, I can't afford to live mm-hmm. off this, so I'm going to do a second job. How is that fair? How is that right? Like?
1: Well, and I just, you know, I I think about what it must be like, like if you're working a second job because you're doing legal aid, you're I don't know cashier at Pharmasave, and your client comes in and sees you working the cash register. Like, what does that do for the whole lawyer-client relationship?
0: we have a significant access to justice problem, uh, you know, in this this province I'll speak of, you know, but across this country, we see people who represent themselves, you know, and there's problems with that. It's not saying that you're not going to do an okay job, you know, we'll try to help as many people as we can, but the legal process is complex. It is challenging. There's a reason we go to school and do articling and work in this and make it our profession. Because trying to do this off the side of your desk while you're trying to put, food, you know, make money from your job, put food on the table, and then try to deal with a legal issue uh, on your own without any real support is just a recipe for disaster.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, you probably deal with more self-reps than I do. Um I don't know about that, actually. but I No, know I
1: think you, you probably do.
0: <laughs> you know, it's just, I mean, in our perspective, I deal with self-reps very rarely. And I think... You know, to their credit, plaintiff's counsel in the personal injury realm are very good about helping whoever they can. Um, You know, they go out, they have a system set up in which they are able to facilitate helping people because that's what they do. They do help people. Um, And I always try to keep that in mind because uh, it's very easy to get tunnel visioned in my area of law. Mm -hmm. Um, But as you do this a bit more, you know, you recognize that this is a human, it's a human system. And there's humans involved, and you have to be empathetic, and you have to be able to recognize the motivations behind why people are doing what they're doing. Um, But we as a profession need to definitely look at what we can do to help. And quite frankly, the government needs to be able to do something as well, because they're the ones who control legal aid. So if I were to say anything about that, and I I didn't want to be in a call where I was telling people what to do, but... (laughs) Tell them what to
1: do, RJ. You know, you've got the answers.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Me, who has no skin in the game, looks and goes, you know, I think we all need to come together and try to come up with a solution. And I think the people have to recognize why having access to legal aid in in a better capacity and making sure your practitioners are able to not worry about other avenues in life or other issues in life, like being able to feed themselves. Uh, is more is in your benefit
1: yeah well that's a fantastic note to end on i, I, I think that. so <laughs> thank you so much for joining me on the podcast here how oh, not at all how can people reach you if they want to hire you
0: so if you go to my firm's website it's swadden s-w-a-d-d-o-n-e-n pardon me dot com i should know that
1: Swadden with yeah. an e <laughs>
0: Swadden with an E. Sorry, Rick. Uh, You'll find me and my colleagues there. Uh, If you want to email me, it's R-W-A-L-L-I-A at swaddenwithane.com. And, you know, if I can help, I'll do what I can. If I can't, uh, I'll try to help you find someone who can. Because, like I said, this is a people profession and we should try to help out as many as we can.
1: Thank you. Thank you again to RJ Walia for joining me on the Driving Law Podcast. He's an excellent resource, and if you have any type of insurance-related issue that doesn't have to do with ICBC, uh, because he works for ICBC, you should reach out to him, uh, give him a call, nice guy, smart And a friend of mine. So there you go. Uh, If you need to reach me or Paul for any reason, you can find us online at VancouverCriminallaw.com or give us a call 604-685-8889 and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.